0: Take your Bibles and turn to Nehemiah, chapter 5. Let us hear now the word of the Lord. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. Uh, but, yeah, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, You are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been extracting from them. Then they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests, and I made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the... uh, 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Each, even their servants, lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work of this wall and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table a hundred and fifty men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You so much this morning for Your Word that You have given to us. Um, Lord you know that we are a needy people that we come Lord today and even in our most strongest of strongest times Lord we are weak and Lord you in your weakest of weakest times are still greater than we are and so we pray as our Savior that you would continue to be our advocate and Savior this morning that you would instruct us and that you would teach us Lord, that where we may have strayed, that you would draw us back to yourself, that we would rest upon you and you alone. So, Lord, open our ears, open our minds, open our hearts, our wills, our desires, Lord, to follow you. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, this morning I I want to uh, ask a question that might be sort of an unusual question, and I actually can't take credit for this question myself, I sort of stole it from another preacher, to be honest with you, but he asked the question of this, what makes Satan smile? What makes Satan happy? Well, J.I. Packer uh, points out that Satan is a hater, he's a wrecker, he's a, a destroyer, and only when he is ruining God's work in individuals and communities is God happy. And that's what we see here in Nehemiah chapter 5. We see a picture of something that would make Satan very happy. And I want us just to jump right into the text this morning with not much introductory comments. And the first thing I want us to see as we look here is just the cry for help that the people make in verses 1 through 5. We see in our text again that the people of God are being oppressed. And this isn't anything new. And, and it's sort of unfortunate I took two weeks vacation between chapters 4 and chapter 5 because 4 and 5 go together very well. Uh, chapter uh, 4, we saw the oppression of God's people. Samballat and Tobiah and, and uh, the Arabs and others were coming against them in many different ways. In previous chapters in Nehemiah, we see the oppression of God's people. Even back in the book of Ezra, As we went through that book, we saw a number of places. As a matter of fact, I said at the very beginning, towards the beginning of the series uh, of our study on Ezra and Nehemiah, that opposition to God, and therefore opposition of his people, is a common theme in these books. And it ought to be something that does not take us by surprise as Christians, as there are those who oppose us. But here in chapter 5, we see an opposition like we've never seen before in any of the other examples that go before us. Because what we see here, you know, well, let me say this up to this point, all the opposition has come from external sources. It has come from those outside of the community of God's people who were opposing the people of God um, outwardly. But here in chapter 5, we see the oppression comes from within the people of God. Now, uh, if you have uh, grown up in a church, and I I hope not, but if you have ever attended or been in a church uh, where there was fighting and there was division and there was anger, there was backbiting, there was gossiping going on, then you understand what it means for the people of God to devour the people of God. And, and while I pray that no one really has to go through that, I know that there are churches uh, where that happens. And it's in those times that there's often times uh, believers are in great distress, and they cry out to the Lord, Oh, Lord, deliver us. I know for me, part of my experience was to be in such a church. And so the, the, the great cry that arises in verse 1 makes sense. And, and the cry comes out not only from the people, but I think it's very interesting that it says that it came from their wives. Most likely I would think that this would suggest that it mentions that, that the home was also under attack. Uh, many of you know that dynamic, that when all things are well in your home, you can endure almost any attack. But when the home is in turmoil, and it doesn't have to be that there's fighting or bickering in the home. It could just be that your home uh, is under uh, great difficult circumstances. Maybe your relationship with your wife or your husband, and with your kids, or, or uh, if you are single, if you know, if all is well with yourself, you know, uh, still there could be those times when your home is in turmoil, and it's in those times it's almost difficult to endure any kind. of of attack. Uh, but here there's not only strife in the home um, but uh, there has been attacks that's been going on for quite some time externally as the enemies of God have been attacking the people of God. And, and so here the people are exhausted from fighting off the attacks of the enemy of God and now they're struggling with internal strife as well, Now, what's the situation? Well, the text tells us that they're running out of food. Uh, the families have come from neighboring villages to help build the walls of Jerusalem. And they devoted so much time to the work of the Lord and the building of the walls that they weren't able to care for their own fields and their own vineyards and stuff. And so food is beginning to run short. And uh, they are, are experiencing that. Uh, and even worse than that, there are those in Israel who are taking advantage of the situation. Verse 3 describes those who have mortgaged their lives away, not so that they can have a bigger house, not so that they can drive a fancier car, not so that they can go on a European vacation like their neighbors, you know, but they did so simply that they might have food to put on the table that their families might be able to eat. Because as verse 3 tells us, there's a famine that's going on on the land. And on top of that, as if that weren't enough, then the other pressure that they're under is that the taxes are due. It seems like the taxes are always due, right? But the taxes are due. Artaxerxes he, he must have his pay, you see, in verse 4. And so so desperate was the situation that the people of God, we see in verse 5, were selling their children into slavery to pay off their debts. Brothers and sisters, it was a dark time for the people of God. And the question that may come to your mind that you may be asking is, is to whom were they selling their property and their children? Who who was taking advantage of the Israelites' unfortunate circumstances? And the very sad answer is, it was other Israelites. It was other people who were part of the people of God. So the people of God were extorting and using and defrauding the people of God. And so therefore you have this great cry to the Lord to please deliver them. The second thing we see is not only the cry for help, but a call for justice. A call for justice in verses 6 through 13. Uh, Nehemiah, he says in verse 6, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. Now, there are men who have strong opinions but take little action. But there are other men who have strong opinions but they have a will to act on those opinions. And that was Nehemiah. He was a man of action. And, and uh, it says in verse 7, I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. Now, you might ask yourself, why didn't he take counsel with other people? I mean, doesn't the Bible say that there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors, right? Uh, that's something that we should do. But I, you know, And while the text doesn't give us the answer as to why he doesn't seek advice from the leadership, I would guess that there's a, a couple of very obvious answers. Maybe one is that the leaders were part of the problem. It was the nobles and stuff who were actually selling people into to slavery or buying people into slavery and stuff. Um, but the other answer, I think, that's part of this as well is that the Bible was very clear about this. It wasn't that Nehemiah had to sit down and pontificate. Lord, what's the answers to this difficult life issue? He knew exactly what was supposed to be done because God was very clear in his word that he forbid Israel from doing what you see happening in our text here. Uh, In Exodus uh, 22, Leviticus 25, other chapters such as this, God forbids Israel from loaning money with interest to other believers. Uh, And as a matter of fact, uh, he forbid usury. And what I mean by usury is the unjust taking advantage of another person's poverty, of charging an exorbitant amount of, of interest to the point where they, they could not pay. And and the point that we see here is as Nehemiah's anger, his righteous anger is stirred, is that God hates oppression. That our God is a God who hates oppression. Not only that, God is the one who defends the oppressed. And therefore, he calls his people to do the same. Uh, Psalm uh, 68, verse 5, is where we read those very famous words that God is the father of the fatherless and the protector of widows. He is the one who is there to defend them. And God has uh, set up his his law and the economy of his people so that they might care for one another. I mean, just think back to the book of Ruth. And when Ruth and Naomi returned to Israel, they have no money, they have no job, they have no way to sustain themselves. But it's okay, because God had put in place the law such that said that when you harvest your field, if you drop something, just leave it there so that the poor can come and pick it up. Or, you know, when you're harvesting your fields, don't go right up to the edge. Just sort of round it off and leave a little bit extra there so that those who are poor can come in. Because you see, God hates oppression, and God defends the oppressed, and He cares for them. And He calls us as His people to do the same thing. One of the most condemning chapters of the Bible is Ezekiel 22, where God condemns Israel for taking advantage of one another. And I won't take the time to turn there, but you can turn there later and read that for yourself. And so what does Nehemiah do? Nehemiah, understanding what God's words did, uh, brings this to bear upon the covenant community. He calls for a great assembly in verse 7, and he scolds the leaders. And, and we read in verse seven, uh, verse 8, and, he's, and he said to them, uh, we, as far as we are able have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us in other words you buy back your own people but not to redeem them from slavery but to send them back into slavery uh, you do worse than what the gentiles do in other words he's saying what you're doing is worse than what an unbeliever does now, I think all of us expect that when we go to the bank, down the road, that they're going to charge us interest. Okay, and that's, that's okay because, you know, that's, that's how uh, non-Christian businesses work. You expect uh, non-Christian retailers maybe to take advantage of you or an unbeliever that you buy something from. If they seek to rip you off, you might go, well, that's fine. I mean, it's not that you like that, but you don't expect unbelievers to act like believers uh, but you do expect Christians uh, to follow what God's word says, and these leaders were guilty, and we read of their response in verse eight it says they were silent and could not find a word to say. Nehemiah confronted them with their sin and and there's just there was no excuse and 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 isn't that a beautiful thing, brothers and sisters? you know i've I've served in many different courts of the church and One of the things that's not the most pleasant thing to do, but it's necessary, is sometimes to confront people with their sins. Whether that's in the church setting as as part of a session, whether that's being in the presbytery uh, dimension and uh, maybe confronting a church or individuals in a church. And, you know, it's interesting. You can almost always tell if there's a heart of repentance that you're dealing with or not. Because a person who is unrepentant oftentimes comes up with excuses for their sins. They oftentimes are just like what Adam was in the garden when he said, Oh God, it was the woman you gave me. She's the one that did it. You know. He he just he had somebody else to blame. And you know, we know that. We see this in our families, do we not, right? With our kids. You know, you call them down and they're like, Well, but so and so they did it, you know, or they did it worse. And that's the nature of sin. But oftentimes when there's a sense of repentance, there's a sense of silence that's there. And and Nehemiah goes on in verse 9 and he said, The things that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? You see, not only were the people suffering, but the enemies of God are laughing and mocking at them. If If I might insert this, I would say, Satan is smiling. Satan is laughing at this point in time as he sees how the people of God are treating the people of God. Well, Nehemiah, he continues to be bold and to to preach the word and to, to challenge the people to be obedient to the word. And so we read in verse 11, Nehemiah says, return to them their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. You say, Pastor Rick, you missed a part of that. It says, return to them this very day. Do this now. Right away. Repent of your sin. Turn from your wicked way. And make it right with your brothers and sisters. And to which they reply to verse 12, we will restore these and require nothing of them. We will do as you say." Now, there there is a great point here that is really good for all of us, but I especially want you young people to listen to this. Doing the right thing is oftentimes costly and painful. Okay, Do you hear that, young people? especially you, those of you that are teenagers now. As I said in Sunday school, you know, you're getting to that point where you know, you're not just doing what your parents tell you to do, they're giving you some freedom and they're teaching you to think for yourself and to understand and to, to know how to make godly decisions. And, and so as you make those decisions of what you're gonna do and what you're not going to do, you need to understand that sometimes doing the right thing is oftentimes costly and it's painful. And if you only do those things that will make you happy, young people, if you will only do those things that make you feel good, then you are most likely going to walk down the wide path to destruction. You need to understand that doing the right thing is often costly and is painful. And most of us here know that lesson, but we need to be reminded of that, that living righteously can be painful and it can cost, and sometimes, and there may be some of you that are here today that that's where you're at, that you have been walking righteously, and there is pain and there's difficulty in your life, and you're just like Lord, what is going on, and you're you're struggling with that. But the right thing is often the painful thing. Yet that is what the people of God do, because that's where the Lord calls us to go and to do. Well, not only the nobles and the officials, but we see in verse twelve also that the priests that Nehemiah makes the priests swear to do what they promised that they would do. I think it's interesting that you know the priests were the ones, the first ones to to lead in the rebuilding of the wall, but they were also participating in this injustice in Israel. Then Nehemiah takes his garment that has something in it. It might have been grain, I don't know what it was and he shakes it out in front of the assembly, I guess is really sort of a visible illustration. And he says in verse 13, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise, so may he be shaken out and emptied. And it's like Nehemiah is saying, those of you who failed to return your brother's property and their family, might they be shaken out and emptied uh, as they were? Might, might you have done to you what you have done to other people if you do not keep your promise. Well, the assembly agreed to do what Nehemiah said. And we see the people of God moving from oppressing their brothers, maybe out of disobedience to God's word, maybe it was more a sense of apathy. I, I know there are those times in our lives where we know what God's word says, but we don't want to do it. You know, it just it just seems like if we just twist God's word a little bit, we can sort of justify our disobedience. Maybe that's where they were. I, I don't know what their motivation was, but, but they moved from that oppressing their brothers to repentance and obedience and then even being showing benevolence towards the suffering of others. Well, Nehemiah shows us what great leadership looks like You know, you may have heard it said that good leaders uh, uh, get people to do things they don't want to do, right? Uh, But great leaders not only get them to do it, but to enjoy it as well. And I would suggest to you that that Nehemiah is a great leader. Uh, If you look, that's what we see here in in verse 13. Uh, What did the people say when Nehemiah told them what to do? They said, Amen! They said, So be it, brother! That's it. And then they praised the Lord. And it said, and the people did as they had promised. They actually did it, and they were happy to do it. Now, I asked earlier, what makes Satan happy? Well, verse 13, I think we begin to see Satan's smile turn into a frown, right? He is no longer happy as he sees the repentance in God's people. And while Satan has been working to divide the people of God, God has also been at work behind the scenes to rebuke and to a call to repentance and humility and obedience and God's people have done that. You see, where Satan works to, to tear down and to destroy, God is much more powerful to build up and to restore. You see, what God is building here in Nehemiah while we've been looking, oh goodness, what, three, four chapters now, you know, two or three chapters maybe, on this rebuilding of the wall uh, we see here that God is doing much more than rebuilding the wall of a city. He's building the people of God. He's refining them and he's sanctifying them as perfect as they are uh, so that God continues to work in their lives. And brothers and sisters, this ought to give us great encouragement ourselves, especially if you're here today and you have had a rough week and maybe you've found yourself giving in more to sin than to walking with the Lord. The battle hasn't been as fierce because you've laid your sword down and your shield down and you've just given yourself over to the enemy. And maybe you're here today and you're so discouraged. And as Matt said, maybe you pray and you think, oh God, but I just don't feel like I'm forgiven. Understand that God is still at work amongst His people. And it doesn't matter what you feel like, God is faithful. And He calls you to repent in Him and to trust Him him that he is still at work in you you see God's been working through Nehemiah not only to bring correction and upholding God's people but also to be a model of generosity in the face of opposition and so that brings us to our third point and that is a choice of generosity a choice of generosity I really want to say a model of generosity but choice has a C and that fits the other two points okay (laughs) So we see in Nehemiah's life a biblical model of generosity and servanthood. Uh, One way to really think about this uh, passage of scripture from verses 14 through 19 is a rich man who empties himself on behalf of the people of God. Does that sound familiar? But Nehemiah empties himself on behalf of the people of God. He's not simply a leader or a servant, but he is the governor of, of this region we see in verse 14 he was a cupbearer to the king and and you get a sense from the passage maybe because of that he's a very wealthy man if you look at verses 14 through 19 you see the wealth that, that Nehemiah has uh, and he was but yet even as a wealthy man he was entitled to the governor's allowance from the people But we see at the end of verse 14 that Nehemiah forgoes that allowance. He says, I'm not going to take your taxes, your tax money, the allowance from the tax money. Um, Why? Well, if you look at the end of verse 18, it gives us one reason. Because the people were starving. They were impoverished. And he wasn't going to take advantage of the people Unlike the other governors who laid a heavy burden on the people. And I think it's, it's interesting that in verse 15 it says even their servants lorded it over the people. Even the, the servants of the governors were, were treating the people wrongly. But Nehemiah did not do so. But why? Well it wasn't just because the people were suffering. But verse 15 tells us but I did not do so because of the fear of God. See, he cared more about what God thought and what God says than what the people thought or what others thought. Uh, this is the second time that we've come across this phrase, the fear of God. Look back at verse 9. Is Nehemiah is rebuking the leaders. He said, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Ought you not to be more concerned about what God thinks and to obey Him and to do what He says than to do that which you want to do or worried about what other people think? You see, it is the fear of God that motivates Nehemiah to be a model of generosity rather than to lord it over the people. Doesn't that sound like the Apostle Paul? What does he say to the churches? And you guys can appreciate this because we are a church plant. Okay, And Paul says to the church plants as he goes around and he's preaching the gospel and these churches are popping up, he said to them, you know, I have a right as a minister to take pay from you guys because I'm worthy of my hire. But he said, you know what I'm going to do instead so I don't create a burden on you? I'm going to make tents for a living. I'm going to go back to that which I know I'm going to make tents and earn my living that way and I'm going to preach the gospel for free so I don't... Create a burden upon you. And that's exactly what Nehemiah says. And not only that, but Nehemiah persevered in the work on the wall, as we see in verse 16. And he also had his people, his servants, working on the wall as well. So Nehemiah was not a leader who used his position to lord it over the people, but rather he was concerned for them. He sacrificed on behalf of the people, he worked alongside of them, taking no special privileges whatsoever whatsoever you see nehemiah doesn't see himself above the people he views himself among the people now i know that in the modern day work structure we flatten the the hierarchy of, of leadership and so that doesn't sound odd to us maybe but he was the governor and he had every right to demand these things and yet he chose not to do so Instead he gave to the people. As a matter of fact, it cost him. He not only didn't take the money of the people, but he used his own money to feed hundred and fifty people. He fed the Jews, he fed the officials, he fed the people from the other nations that were around him. He's a model of generosity, he's a model of kindness, He's a man of high station in life yet because he fears God he considers his position as nothing but to be used for the glory of God and the good of his people. You see, Nehemiah was a man who practiced what he preached and he preached what he practiced too, by the way. Uh, He was was kind to the people and he gave and he gave and he gave. And, And for what? Well, we talked about how he, he feared the Lord. But look at verse 19. Notice how this chapter ends. He says, "Remember, this is a prayer. Remember for my good, O God, all that I have done for this people." Now it might, at first glance, appear like he's praying a very proud prayer, like he's saying, "Hey, God, notice everything I've done, and don't forget to pay me back." But that, I, I, that, I would—that's not really how we ought to take that. You see, what Nehemiah's hope here was not that the people would see his works and thank him, but ultimately that God himself would see and take delight in what um, Nehemiah has done for his people. But Nehemiah recognizes that it is God who is working through him to do these things. And so it's not an inappropriate prayer at all to ask God to remember the things that we have been able to do by his grace. Because it's not us who does it. But it is God that does it in and through us. To his glory and praise. Amen. Well, as we come to the end of this chapter, um, I just want us to reflect upon this just a minute on just a couple of matters. First of all, we we need to see that that Nehemiah was a great leader. But more than that, he was a Christ-like leader. In the same way that there are characters that are sort of standing behind the characters in this account. There's Satan uh, that's been about his business of trying to divide and conquer and destroy and distract the people of God. Uh, But praise God, he's also at work in this account. And one of the things that God is doing is shaping Nehemiah into the character that directs our focus to Christ. Because like Christ, uh, Nehemiah denied himself for the sake of God's people. Just as Jesus came uh, not to be served but to serve. So Nehemiah denied himself and he served those around him. Also, like I said earlier, he was a a rich man who empties himself on behalf of the people. Now, there's other ways that Nehemiah is not like Jesus. Nehemiah is not like Jesus in many ways. Actually, uh, Jesus uh, did not have sins that he had to confess like Nehemiah did. Jesus was not an imperfect leader like Nehemiah. Nehemiah did many great things, but he wasn't perfect. Jesus was burdened by the weight of our sin, not his own sin, like Nehemiah. And that's why Jesus said um, in, the, in the verse that Matt quoted earlier, Mark 10:45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. When Christ died as a ransom for his people on the cross, it was at the cross that God remembered us and he smiled most brightly at his people. Have you ever thought about that? That at the cross, God smiled because Christ was purchasing a people for himself. But it was at that very moment when the Father remembered us that he turned that smile away from his Son. But the smile of God returns at the resurrection. The great hope that the people of God have is not that what Nehemiah has done, but in all of the promises that were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And as we come this morning as God's people, no matter, you know, how our week has gone, and no matter how we have done in our walk with the Lord or in our battle, in our spiritual battle, to know that all the promises in Christ Jesus are yes, yes, They have been fulfilled for us, not because of what we have done, but because of what our Savior has done. Hallelujah? Amen. Praise the Lord for His goodness to us. And the smile of the Father never goes away because the Father never ceases to smile at His Son. Nehemiah 5 points to the perfect leader, Jesus, but it also looks at the imperfect people of God starting the chapter embodying oppression and ending the chapter embodying repentance and generosity. Brothers and sisters, when is the church at its healthiest? When are we at our healthiest? Well, we are at our healthiest as Christians when we see the church not about meeting our own needs. You know, it's not all about us but about caring for the body of Christ, about loving others. Nehemiah 5, the people of God, had become opportunistic. Uh, what they were looking at was the situation and thinking, how can I take advantage of this situation for, to meet my own needs and, and, and to, to make things happen for me? But by the end of the chapter, God's people were at their best. They were humble. They were contrite. They were repentant. But they also embodied deeds of mercy and of kindness. They considered the needs of others as more important than their own. You see, when, when we truly love God, and there may be those of you that would say, Pastor Rick, we are our healthiest when we love the Lord. And, and I would agree with that. But I would suggest to you that we cannot love the Lord without loving his people. When we love the Lord, we are compelled to love his people. And they saw the church not as a way to get their needs met, but ultimately about caring for each other. Uh, Maybe another way to put it is like this, that the church is the healthiest when the weakest of its members is cared for. Can we say that as a church? Can we say that? That those who are the weakest in our body that they're taken care for. You know, I think another way that we sort of hear the same idea said in our culture is no chain is stronger than its weakest link. And that's true in the body of Christ. That's true in the body of Christ. You know, I, I sort of started this sermon by asking the question, what makes Satan smile? But let me finish by asking what makes God smile? Let me suggest to you, it's when the people of God, rather than taking advantage of each other, instead care for and come alongside each other. That makes God smile. And this is true in our families, is it not? I mean, parents, I don't think I have to uh, press very long before I find out what is it that makes you smile when it comes to your kids. Is it when they're fighting and they're devouring one another? and uh, screaming and yelling at each other? You're like, oh, Pastor Rick, no. But were you at my house this morning? No, I'm just kidding. Um, Or is it when they're being kind and they're being compassionate and they're being thoughtful of one another? The Lord has given us pictures in our own homes to show us what the church is to be. And isn't that why the Bible speaks so much about how we are to treat one another? That a healthy church is recognized by its kindness and its compassion towards its weakest member. And so what makes God smile? When the Spirit of of Christ works in us the mind of Christ, that we might embody the love of Christ in the church of Christ. That's what makes God smile. Lord, may we be such a church that would glorify Him and bring Him pleasure. Amen. Amen? Let's bow our, our, our heads and our minds and our hearts before the Lord and take just a moment to respond to Him silently in prayer. God we thank you so much that you are a God who hates oppression that you are a God who cares for and protects those who are oppressed that Lord you have uh, given your image to us as humans but Lord even as Christians you have more so uh, you are um, bringing about that Christ-likeness in us, even as we talked this morning about bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Oh, Lord, thank you. Uh, I want to thank you, God, for our congregation, and I thank you, Lord, for the love that they have for one another. Uh, It's been good to see. But, Lord, the reality is, too, that we oftentimes are very busy, and it, it is so easy, God, for us to get caught up and to be thinking of our own selves and, and maybe not thinking about others. And so I pray, Lord, that you would work in our, in our hearts and our lives, Lord Jesus, to uh, look to you, uh, God, to work in us, to be able to see the needs of others, to move towards them, Father, and to care for them, especially, Lord, those who are suffering. Father, we prayed for for many of those folks in in our prayer of supplication this morning. But there may be other needs as well that are hidden, that's not printed in the bulletin. Lord, things that that we are blind to. But open our eyes, O God, that we might be your people and that we might reflect your character, be your hands and your feet and your mouth uh, to do your will. We just thank you, O God, and pray these things in your name. Amen.